Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In July 1969, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and the Apollo 11 lunar module lifted off from the Sea of Tranquility. They left behind a plaque on the surface of the moon. Engraved in the metal strip was the mission's motto, We come in peace for all mankind. Yet ironically, mankind had to go to the moon to find any peace. On earth, there's no such thing as a sea of tranquility. Our world is full of friction and fighting. Our past has been a tale of turmoil. One historian calculated that throughout time, for every two minutes of peace, there's been been an hour of war. Even today, the world is racked with unrest. Earth is not a peaceful place. As somebody observed, when a man gets arrested for disturbing the peace, I'm amazed that he found any. There's no peace on our streets. And there's no peace in our homes. Spouses and siblings are at each other's throat. Most homes are not a peaceful place. And this is all just the tip of the iceberg. For the real conflict rages internally in the hearts of men and women. We don't get along with each other because we don't get along with ourselves. We wrestle with our own emptiness and with the superficiality of our lives. There's no peace on earth because there's no peace of mind. Pressures percolate. Stress takes its toll. The results are heartbreaks and heart attacks and hard hearts. It's been said people are going to pieces today because they don't know peace. And there's only one hope. We need God's peace. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker that reads, No, N-O, God, no peace. But no, K-N-O-W, God, and no peace. God promises His people a deep, abiding consoling peace. Psalm 29 verse 11 declares, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. This is the reason God sent his son into the world. This is the reason he sent Jesus. Remember what the angels told the shepherds at Jesus's birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. In John 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus promised a unique peace that only he could manufacture. His is not a man-made peace. You know, we've all made peace at some point in our lives. Perhaps you made peace tonight in the car on the way to church. As you stop the kids from arguing. Nations make peace at the negotiating table. 
It's been said this kind of peace is the brief glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading. The world's peace is just a ceasefire. You see, there's more to making peace than just agreeing to leave each other alone. The peace of Jesus is so much more. True peace is not the absence of conflict, but it's peace even in the midst of that conflict. This is Jesus' peace. It's the calm to fall asleep in a storm-tossed boat. It's the confidence to chase a pack of demons out of a madman. It's the composure to pray for forgiveness on behalf of your torturers, even while you're nailed to a cross, even in the throes of death. This is real peace. The peace that Jesus manufactures is an artesian peace that bubbles up from deep within our spirit. In moments of crisis, it pushes to the surface and it provides a supernatural cool. God's peace is an unruffled rest that neither hail nor high water can disturb. Two artists were painting gorgeous landscapes. They were different, but both were given the very same title, peace. The first painting was that of an undisturbed lake nestled in the mountains. The second painting was that of a tall, thunderous waterfall. Its waters tumbled over the ledge into a tiny pool, spraying the surrounding rocks. And tucked away in the crevice of one of the cliffs was a tiny white dove sitting snugly, calmly in her nest. Well, God's peace isn't an escape to the mountains. It's a nest in the midst of turbulence. God's peace isn't isolation from churning waters, but calm in their midst. You know, the Bible promises us both peace with God and the peace of God. Sin has ruptured our relationship with God. It's an affront to God. You know, we think of sin as breaking God's law, but far worse, sin is breaking God's heart. And yet the sacrifice of Jesus mercifully, gracefully made amends for our sin. When I recognize my sin and I trust in the work of Jesus, he repairs the breach. God buries the hatchet. The friction is over. A believer is at peace with God. But just because I'm at peace with God doesn't mean that I'll be enjoying the peace of God. For the peace of God is just that. It's his peace. As one author put it, it's the serenity in which God lives. It's God's confidence. God's peace is his unshakableness. It's his unbreakableness. It's his unhurriedness. It's his unworriedness. In receiving the peace of God, it's as if God breaks off a piece of his own peace and then gives it to you. This is truly an incredible experience. What do you do when you're at a restaurant With a little baby and that baby starts to cry. Well I've seen my wife the super mom in action. What she likes to do is pull off a piece of food. Maybe a bit of the breadstick, or maybe a carrot or perhaps a french fry. And she'll let the little whiner suck on it until dinner's over. And believe it or not this is what God does. He sees us coming unglued. He sees us losing our grip. 
We're whining. We're crying. So God breaks off a piece of his own strength and composure. And he gives it to us in the form of his peace. The peace of God is just that. It's a piece of God's peace. In the midst of our loss, he gives us his hope. In the midst of our weakness, he gives us a portion of his strength. In the midst of our confusion, he gives us some of his wisdom. In the midst of our fear, he gives us his love. Paul tells us here in verse 7 that God's peace surpasses all understanding. Often there's no tangible reason to feel the poise or calm or strength or love that fills our hearts. It comes out of nowhere without explanation. I was in the office today speaking to a young man who's going through many difficult trials. And he says, I just can't explain it. But there's a peace in my life. It's God's peace. God's peace is a supranatural peace. It goes beyond our understanding, beyond our resources. It is truly a miraculous peace. You know, to most Christians, the idea of peace with God is simple and straightforward. We repent of our sin. We believe in God's promise. And as a result, we trust that our sins are forgiven and that God is faithful to his word. We're saved. We're at peace with God. Pretty straightforward. But the peace of God is more elusive. It's sort of like a greased pig. One moment you have it, then a situation changes or a difficulty raises its ugly head and the peace that we had yesterday slips through our grasp today. Well, here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives us what strikes me as a formula. You know, you'll find very few step-by-step formulas in the Bible. Life doesn't usually work out that way anyway. But I believe God is so intent on us knowing his peace that here he makes our receiving it as simple and as applicational as possible. Paul seems to lay out here five steps that we can take to experience God's peace. Tonight I want you to get out a pen and a piece of paper and I want you to jot five statements down. Here are five steps to receiving a piece of God's peace. First, rejoice in one thing. Second, be satisfied with few things. Third, worry about nothing. Fourth, pray about everything. And then fifth, be thankful for anything. Rejoice in one thing, be satisfied with few things, worry about nothing, pray about everything, be thankful for anything. I want you to notice the first step, rejoice in one thing. Again, let's read verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now recall the theme of the book of Philippians. It's joy. There's joy even when the flag of our life flies at half-mast. When there's a loss or when we experience pain or when we're called on to suffer. Even then, if Jesus occupies your heart, there's still a joy. 
You remember, Paul isn't writing the Philippians from a day spa, relaxing after a massage, drinking the sparkling water. That's not what he's doing. He's in a Roman prison cell. He's eating scraps and he's sleeping on stone. And yet he dares to say, rejoice. As one man put it, his rejoicing is a defiant nevertheless. Paul ignores terrible circumstances. And nevertheless, he finds a reason to rejoice. This is why he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul wasn't rejoicing in his circumstances. In fact, there was nothing about his jail cell that inspired joy. You know, every day people go through exhausting, excruciating situations. Some of us have been through very painful trials. God never tells us to rejoice in the loss of our job or rejoice in the death of a spouse or rejoice in troubles with a teenager. God isn't British. He'll never say, hey, just keep a stiff upper lip. It's not rejoice in your circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord. And Paul adds, always. For in Jesus, there is always a reason to rejoice. I like the Phillips translation of verse 4. Delight yourselves in the Lord, yes. Find your joy in Him at all times. Find your joy in Jesus. When I read my Bible and I come across the word rejoice, here's how I read it. Take joy. That's what rejoice means. It means to take joy. Avoid looking to circumstances for joy. Do that and you'll be disappointed. But if you learn to take joy from the Lord, you'll become a joyful person. You know, most Christians know the Lord, but they depend on this world for their joy. How quickly that bubble bursts. The pleasures of this world are fickle and they fade. Lean on them for your kicks and expect a kick in the shins. We need to take our joy from Jesus. Don't just expect joy to fall from heaven and land in your lap. No, learn to take your joy in Jesus Christ. A young man, weary and haggard, he came to see a Paris psychiatrist. The man was suffering a deep, dark depression. Well, as they talked, the psychiatrist thought of another young man, a young Parisian named Grimaldi. This Grimaldi had developed quite a reputation for being a shining star. He was the party animal of Paris. Wealth and wine and women were Grimaldi's daily diet. Well, the psychiatrist suggested that this young man find Grimaldi and arrange an interview. Perhaps Grimaldi could teach him how to enjoy life, pull him out of his despair. But when the doctor made his suggestion, the young man snarled and he said, I am Grimaldi. The world's joy dries up. Rejoice in the Lord and you'll always rejoice. If you want to know God's peace, rejoice in one thing. And then Paul tells us, To be satisfied with few things. As he puts it in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now the Greek word rendered gentleness is a difficult word to translate. It can be rendered in three ways. First, patient in the face of affliction. 
Second, it can mean moderation in material possessions and pleasures. Finally, it can be taken as a non-retaliatory or a merciful spirit. My definition combines all three ideas. It's the ability to live without. Whether it's living without ease and comfort or living without the convenience of material things or living without the pleasure of getting even and demanding justice. See, can I be satisfied even when life doesn't go my way? Can I be satisfied even if I don't obtain everything that I'd like? Can I be satisfied even if I don't get treated fairly? You see, this gentleness, this moderation is the ability to be content in a less than perfect world. Paul is saying, in contrast to aggression and ambition, learn to approach life in a more gentle way. If you want to know the peace of God, temper what you expect from this world. Be satisfied with few things. You know, it's time for some of us to swap our American dream for some biblical reality. Life on earth has limits. If we could have all that we wanted here, why would we need heaven? Life on earth is long on promises, but short on promises delivered. Health is tenuous. Riches are uncertain. Friends can be fickle. Justice can be selective. Hey, now I'm not saying don't try to achieve. Do your best. Make your life the best that it can be. No problem with that. But if life doesn't measure up to your idealism, don't be surprised. We live in a fallen world. You set yourself up to know God's peace if you can be satisfied with less from this world. We all need to develop the ability to live without. As one philosopher put it, Contentment comes not so much from great wealth as from few wants. Once upon a time, there was a wealthy king. His money could buy him everything he wanted, except for contentment. He could have all his heart's desire, but he wasn't happy. His counselors told him that if he could find a contented man and wear his shirt, he would be at peace. Well, immediately, a captain was dispatched to locate a contented man in his kingdom. But after many, many days, the captain returned and he told the king that he had searched in vain. The king got angry, sent him out again. He had to have a shirt off a contented man. When the captain finally returned, he told the king that such a man had been found. He'd been living in the wilderness on the outskirts of the kingdom. The king said, at last, give me a shirt. The captain answered, he didn't own one. Reminds me of the Puritan who gazed at his meager rations of bread and water. He bowed his head and he gave thanks. Wow, all this and Jesus Christ too. The man obviously had found his joy not in what, but in who. Paul is saying that we would be wise to do the same. I love Paul's reminder at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming soon. And he's near right now. Take joy in Jesus and you'll need less and less from this world. Paul wrote Timothy, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. 
If you want to know God's peace, rejoice in one thing. Be satisfied with few things. And then verse 6, worry about nothing. Paul writes, be anxious for nothing. Now, I'm sure that as a Christian, you never, ever worry. I'm sure of that. I can't imagine any of the good folks at Calvary Chapel ever worrying. We just carry a concern, or we bear a burden. We don't worry. Well, call it what you'd like. But when you become preoccupied with what you can't control, it's worry. And it's amazing what we worry about. Did you know that 40% of our worries are about stuff that never happens? 40%. 30% are about what happened in the past that we can't change now anyway. 12% revolve around what other people think. That really doesn't matter. 10% are health issues that we can't control. That means only 8% of our worries are over legitimate concerns. 8%. Mickey Rivers was a former major league outfielder and a part-time philosopher, I imagine. He said this, Ain't no sense worrying about things you got control over, because if you got control over them, ain't no sense worrying. And there ain't no sense worrying about things you got no control over either, because if you got no control over them, ain't no sense worrying. That's a great philosophy. Of course, this doesn't mean we can't plan, but proper planning is preparation without preoccupation. If my planning for the future paralyzes my life today, it has become worry. See, worry cuts a gully in my mind that drains off my thoughts and my feelings. I waste the energy and emotion that I need for today on a tomorrow that may never come. I love this little poem. The worried cow would have lived till now if she had saved her breath, but she feared her hay wouldn't last all day, so she mooed herself to death. And I'm afraid some of us are mooing ourselves to death. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that worry is a waste of time because it doesn't work. You remember what he said? He asked, which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? A cubit was about 18 inches. Let's say you're short. You're vertically challenged, we could say. You're tired of going to parties and staring at people's kneecaps. You hug a tall person, you catch a belt buckle in the throat. You hate this. Well, go ahead, start worrying about it. Go ahead and spend a lot of time, work long and hard. And then at the end of the day, measure yourself. How much will all that worrying produce in terms of growth? Zero. It has zero results. Jesus said, your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Rather than worry, we need to trust dad. Realize, worry isn't just a personality trait. Oh, I'm just a worrier. No, no, no. It's not a personality trait. It's not a character flaw. It's not an individual idiosyncrasy. The Bible calls it a sin. Jesus commanded, do not worry about your life. It's a command. Our worry is a failure to trust the Lord who loves us. We honor and love God in return by trusting in Him. 
I like 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And yet you say, Pastor Sandy, it sounds so simple. You make it so simple. I start out casting all my cares on God, but my problem is I always take them back. You see, the reason you throw down your concerns only to pick them up again is because you don't take anything in return. The story's told in World War II, the Allies, they built orphanages to care for kids whose parents had died in battle. One orphanage was having trouble getting the children to go to sleep. Well, the beds were comfortable, the conditions were safe, and the officials were puzzled. They brought in a psychologist who interviewed the kids. His solution was to put them to bed with a slice of bread in their hands. And it worked. You see, these kids had spent long hours of hunger, and they couldn't relax if their hands were empty. And neither can we. Leave your cares with God, but in their place, take a piece of his peace. Rejoice in Jesus. Keep a firm grip on the bread of life and watch your worries vanish. We should worry about nothing. And then we should pray about everything. Notice verse 6. But in everything by prayer, and supplication. We should take all that effort and all that energy that we waste on worry and redirect it toward prayer. In other words, turn your cares into prayers. Whereas the old saying goes, when your knees knock, kneel on them. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 gives us a similar command. It says, pray without ceasing. How do I pray without ceasing? Does this mean I need to quit my job and move into a monastery? Of course not. Paul wants us to develop the attitude where all throughout the day we're involved in an open-ended conversation with God. Are you carrying on a dialogue with God in the car, raking leaves at the supermarket? You should be praying, just carrying on this open-ended dialogue with God. The phrase without ceasing here comes from a Greek word which means to to cough. You know how you can get a tickle in the back of your throat that causes you to cough and clear out? This is Paul's way of illustrating the kind of prayer life we should practice. Throughout the day, we should just be coughing up prayers. When something tickles your heart, when something grabs your attention, when you see a beautiful sunset, You just, Lord, thank you for that. That's beautiful. Or when you hear that a friend is sick, Lord, please heal Sam. We're just constantly coughing up prayers to God. This is how he wants us to pray. You know, when it comes to prayer, the greatest tragedy is not unanswered prayers, but it's unoffered prayers. James 4 verse 2 tells us, you do not have Because you do not ask. A lack of prayer is actually a sign of our self-reliance. Despite what we say, we don't pray because deep inside, we don't really think we need to. Obviously, we feel like we can do it on our own. How foolish is that? I'm sure you've been cautioned not to pick up heavy objects without bending your knees. 
Hey, stiffen your knees and it'll break your back. And the same is true with life. That's good spiritual advice. Never pick up a heavy load without first bending your knees in prayer to express your dependence upon God. Well, Paul finishes out verse 6, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here's the fifth and last step to knowing the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Be thankful for anything. One day, Charles Spurgeon and an old friend, they were walking in the park. His friend told a joke. It made the preacher roar with laughter. But once Spurgeon had calmed down, he turned to his buddy and he said, Ted, let's get down on our knees and thank God for a good laugh. Who would think to thank God for the gift of laughter? But that's just one example of the many things that we take for granted and should cause us to give thanks. You know, the United States Post Office reports that in the weeks prior to Christmas, they processed thousands of letters to Santa. Children are requesting toys and presents. But the post office also mentions that after Christmas, they process very few thank you notes to Santa. Seldom do humans take the time to say thanks. But not so with a Christian. We should thank God for everything. For God is sovereign over all situations. You remember Paul wrote to the Romans, All things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. You know as I said earlier. Some events in our lives may be so horrific. That give us little reason to rejoice on their own. Just like one key of a piano does not a melody make. You need all the keys on a piano to make beautiful music. And all of life's experiences go into making us into what God desires. For a Christian, everything in their life is converging. It's coming together for God's glory and for our good. God rearranges the broken pieces into a beautiful mosaic. This is why if you pause to think, you'll have cause to thank. Even the gloomiest of circumstances, God always leaves us something for which to be thankful. If you're having problems tonight thinking of something for which to be thankful, let me give you a few suggestions. If you can't pay your bills, then be thankful you're not one of your creditors. You can be thankful that you and God have all the facts about yourself. Even though you haven't gotten all you want, you can be thankful you haven't gotten what you deserve. If you can't be thankful for what you've received, you can be thankful for what you've escaped. And we all can be thankful for many blinds. For if it wasn't for many blinds, it'd be curtains for all of us. I've heard it said, the man who has forgotten the language of gratitude is not likely to be on speaking terms with God. We need to thank God. For anything. Did you know that God answers our prayers in one of four ways? Sometimes he says yes. You know, this is what we like, don't we? It's easy to thank God for his yes answers. 
Oh, we get on the phone, we call our friends, we rejoice together, we stand up in the church and report the news. God's yes is music to our ears. But there's another way that God answers our prayers. Sometimes he says no. Just as a good parent will say no to a child, God sometimes tells his children no. Of course, when was the last time you got on the phone and you called up your friend and you rejoiced? You told, hey, Jane, a wonderful thing happened today. God said no. <laughs> Yet why not have that attitude? If we really, truly want God's will for our lives, we should be just as thankful for the no's as we are for the yeses. But there's a third way that God answers prayer. We should be equally thankful. Sometimes he says, wait. And if you think the no's are tough to swallow, they're nothing like the weights. We want action and we want it right now. Yet there is nothing that builds our character more so than having to wait. We want the answer to our prayer, but often God is working the answer in us as we wait. And then finally, God can also answer some other way. God will answer our prayer, but not in the way we were expecting. God likes to spice it up. He adds a wrinkle or two. Yet regardless of how God answers my prayer, I should be thankful for anything. For whatever he allows, it comes with his purpose. The world and the devil might have meant it for evil, but God intercepted it. He wrapped it in his love, and he will use it in my life for his purposes. For that, I can truly be thankful. Well, here are the five steps to receiving a peace of God's peace. Rejoice in one thing. Be satisfied with few things. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything and be thankful for anything. And then verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Jesus. Here's how this works. You get your heart in that place where you can receive his peace. You take your joy in Jesus. You live with few wants, you stop worrying, you turn those cares into prayers, and you be thankful for God's purposes, even in the difficulties of life. When you develop that kind of faith, then you'll begin to walk in God's miracle peace. And that peace, that is God's peace, will guard your heart and mind in Christ. But guard us how? Well, the word guard was a military term. It referred to the sentinel in the tower, who watched the countryside for an invading army, for some approaching danger. The sentinel didn't know what was on the horizon, and yet he stood guard. He remained at his post to alert the city. And this is how the peace of God works in us. You know, there's much in life that is beyond the horizon. There's much in our lives that's hidden from our view. A lot surpasses our understanding. Do you really know the intentions of the people around you? The guy you're dating? Or the partner in the business project? How can you be sure the decisions that you make will yield the desired outcomes? Life is full of uncertainties. So many questions lurk beyond our understanding. 
It would be nice to send a spy out into the future who could report back to us what he saw, what he learned. Well, this is how the peace of God guards our hearts and our minds. God does surpass our understanding. His presence transcends time and circumstance. God sees and knows all things, even future things. And His peace serves as my lookout. When a person I meet ruffles the peace of God that's prevailing in my heart, I back up. Whoa, I'm cautious about this person. When a potential decision disrupts that peace, I put it on hold. I do nothing to disturb the beautiful peace and the serenity of God that's guarding my heart and mind. It sees what I don't see. I might not understand what it is about that person that's making me feel uneasy. I might not see anything wrong with the decision that I'm contemplating. But if it's not accompanied by God's peace, I lay it aside. Doesn't mean that that particular person is evil or that that decision is somehow sinful. It just means that for some unknown, unseen reason, I don't need to go there right now. Peace of God tells me that. The peace of God is guarding my heart and mind. And it will guard yours too. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've been spared critical mistakes by the peace of God or the lack thereof. At other times, I've done crazy stuff. Other people questioned that turned into a blessing because God gave me a strong peace beforehand. God promises to guard us with his peace. If you're a Christian, you already are at peace with God. But the peace of God is something different. Are you stressed and agitated tonight? Do you long for peace of mind and inner peace that doesn't hinge on surroundings or fall apart at the first sign of trouble? Do you want to sail on the sea of tranquility? Well, you don't need a trip to the moon to get there. You need to rejoice in one thing. Be satisfied with few things. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. And be thankful for anything. You do that. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.